So I think we've got to understand that we're not working from a blueprint here. We are creating the blueprint for the future. Hydrogen is, it's going to play a huge part in the future, but it's definitely not a silver bullet. It's going to play its part where it's needed. You kind of need a whole ecosystem to make it work. You, you know, you need the hydrogen supply, you need the hydrogen to move from the supplier to the consumer, you need storage to balance the system. You need the technology, especially on the CCGT side, um, to actually burn the hydrogen and to generate power. And you need them all to develop at the same sort of a speed. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to explore the potential of green hydrogen in decarbonising the energy system. Created from renewable energy resources and releasing its energy without harmful carbon emissions has led to hydrogen being hailed as a panacea to decarbonisation of heat and fluctuation in natural gas prices. But the reality is that not every application will be either cost-effective or practically viable. To find out more, we are examining every step in the chain, from producing hydrogen to moving it, storing it, and to using it. And we find that success of hydrogen is dependent on the creation of a system, where each part of the cycle, from generation to final user, is connected. And to get green hydrogen, we have to start with what we already have, decarbonise it, and undertake the technology and infrastructure investment that the industry needs to transition to green. Gareth Richardson is the low-carbon technology lead for Atkins. Now, there's a whole rainbow of, of hydrogen production methods. Grey, blue, green, even pink. But in reality, you only have three. You have unabated, which is sort of grey hydrogen, is what people call it. And then you've got low-carbon, which you might term as something that's still maybe from fossil fuels, but produces a little bit of carbon dioxide, it's not all captured, or methane. And then you've got clean hydrogen, which is as close to zero or even negative, depending on the processes that you use. So lots of clients are looking at moving to those, and it's very different, the different use cases for each one. So where are we starting from? So hydrogen is, a, is used a huge amount already. There's already 70 million tonnes used globally, all, pretty much all of which is from natural gas or from coal. And it is created using steam methane reforming. Which basically breaks apart the natural gas to produce hydrogen and, and CO2. But this existing hydrogen market is now looking to decarbonise its processes. So, for example, oil refineries, where they're looking to reduce their carbon footprint of the refinery. Ammonia facilities that are producing fertilisers. They're all looking, or even methanol facilities, are all looking to move their facilities to using lower carbon forms of hydrogen. This means exploring a range of decarbonisation options, from adding carbon capture and storage to the steam methane reformation process, to actually finding new, greener sources of hydrogen altogether. Others are looking at completely changing over to what we'd call green hydrogen, or hydrogen produced via electrolysis. Electrolysis uses water instead of methane as the feedstock and splits it into hydrogen and oxygen. The energy provided to do this ideally comes from renewable generation. 
For those of us who can't remember our school chemistry lessons, Dr Rachel Hall, who's the hydrogen lead in the Atkins Nuclear and Power Net Zero business, reminds us that it all starts with a simple circuit of two carbon electrodes sitting in a salt solution. A current is then passed over the circuit. And what happens? Well, we end up with an anode and a cathode. And what occurs is at the cathode, we get this water coming up to the electrode and it then splits. It's then split and then we get the electrons going back around the circuit to the other side and we get the hydrogen given off. And then on the anode, we then have the oxygen being produced. And so it's basically this electricity is going through the water and splitting it into the two separate gases. And there are a range of electrolysis options available at the moment for splitting hydrogen. And these are developing fast because in order to meet growing demand, they need to be bigger and more efficient. So we do have the alkaline electrolysis, which uses an alkaline electrolyte solution. And when we have proton exchange membranes, and that is actually a solid membrane between two electrodes. And then we also have anion exchange membranes and solid oxide. Solid oxide electrolyzers are particularly exciting to Gareth. So these are high temperature type electrolyzers, which are just starting to come onto the market now. We've been looking at these in quite a lot of detail recently because these have great advantages in terms of the efficiency. They're, they're somewhere around 30% more efficient than um, the PEM and alkaline technologies. Which is important because it directly impacts on the cost of energy needed to split the hydrogen. The problem with that at the moment is that they're very early stage, so the cost is very high. But fundamentally, they don't use any expensive materials. So PEM, for example, uses some rare earth materials and some platinum-based materials as well. So you've got some advantages there with the solid oxide cells in doing that, but then they also have their own engineering challenges around the longevity, because they're operating at higher temperatures. There's some interesting degradation problems. So that's solid oxide cells. But I think they're going to be, they could well be the winner out in industry where you have heat because you need the heat to run them. Absolutely. It's really good for industrial decarbonisation opportunities where there is heat available or where there are processes that have heat. Because if we're putting that heat into the system, we then need less electricity to get that split to occur is the simplest way of putting it. And so the technology readiness level for the solid oxides isn't at the big scale yet, but it has the potential to make that big impact so we can apply it to the industries which have the heat available. So that is a massive one to watch for the future. And this brings us on to some of the future uses of hydrogen, expanding on where it's used today. Because as Rachel said at the beginning, hydrogen is not a catch-all but there are specific industries and applications where it really makes sense. So there's a plethora of new use cases. And I think one of the most important ones that's coming about is steel industry. Decarbonising the steel industry is going to be absolutely crucial because if you think all this new infrastructure we have to build to decarbonise all requires steel. The, even the new wind turbines, the new floating offshore ones, or the new nuclear power plants in the UK, they all require huge amounts of steel to build them. And where hydrogen could play a part in that is that hydrogen can be used as a reductant in the steel process. And when I say reductant, you're basically taking the oxygen off the iron. 
By far the most common method of making steel is using blast furnaces, where coke is the reducing agent and a lot of energy in the form of extreme heat is needed to melt the iron ore. And that's one of the biggest emitters of, of carbon. And what you're doing there is you're trying to pull the oxygen off and recombine it with a carbon molecule and you make CO2. So you end up with a huge amounts of CO2 produced in this process. Now what you can do is you can change that process and use hydrogen to do that. Hydrogen is already used with carbon monoxide in a process known as direct reduction. But Gareth says pure hydrogen could be used instead and projects are underway to refine this process. Steel's going to require hydrogen into the future to decarbonise it. And you can even blend hydrogen into the blast furnaces and replace some of that coke in the current ones. So I think you can get even a 20% reduction doing that with just hydrogen. So steel is a really interesting industry in terms of utilising hydrogen at the moment. But there are lots of other potential uses for hydrogen, and this is because of its versatility. I think I've heard the analogy that uh, it's a bit like a Swiss army knife of molecules. One of the most exciting areas is using hydrogen for energy storage. So if you wanted to draw a huge amount of renewable energy, so if we take the UK for example, with the new Scotwind uh, announcement recently of 25 gigawatts of new wind production, there's going to be parts of the year when there's lots more wind than the UK needs once it's built all this capacity out. And there's an opportunity there to then store some of that energy and then reutilise it in the months or days where we don't have huge amounts of wind. And hydrogen is a very good way of shifting energy from different time zones, in effect. Especially when you're getting beyond a few weeks of, of storage that you need. But storage itself has to be carefully considered. Right now, in the north of England, Norwegian energy company Equinor is doing just that. In partnership with SSE Thermal, it is working on a project for a storage facility that uses the properties of naturally occurring materials deep underground to safely contain gas 1,500 metres below the surface. So uh, why thought caverns? This is Michel Molinon. He's the lead consultant for asset optimization at Equinor and an experienced engineer who's been working on gas storage for the past decade. He's confident that storing hydrogen in salt caverns is a safe and effective method. It's a proven technology since roughly 50 years. We know the behavior, we know the conditions under natural gas. Now we have to understand and find a little bit more the difference between hydrogen and natural gas. For sure, this is also an important uh, task of this uh, work. And in addition, we know also that uh, hydrogen storage is working in, in salt caverns because there are already uh, one famous example in the UK, a little bit to the north, and also uh, three different uh, salt caverns and or salt caverns location in, in the US. But the project that Michael and Equinor are planning is much larger than any that have been done before. If it's completed, the Aldborough Hydrogen Storage Facility will be the largest in the world. So we started to look in this opportunity to build up a storage roughly one and a half year ago, where we sketched really the demand of a storage, uh, where we done tabletop exercise, where we have this flat stable production rate and this intermediate offtake, so there is a gap. This is important because this gap between production and use is exactly the reason that hydrogen is being hailed as a storage solution for renewable power, perhaps using wind energy in combination with the solid oxide electrolyzers that Gareth described. 
But the reality is that for this to work, industry needs to start developing infrastructure with what we already have. And that is blue hydrogen. For Aldborough, the hydrogen will come from the Equinor H2H Salt End facility. This project is also in the planning stages and will convert natural gas to hydrogen and employ carbon capture and storage to retain the CO2. Hydrogen will then be piped to the new salt caverns in Aldborough, which has been the site for natural gas storage since 2009. But hydrogen is different to methane, so what are the technical challenges that have to be considered? So the challenges, of course, as with every gas, you will compress the gas, fill it into a cavern, and then it stays there for a specific duration of time. So it depends, of course, if this hydrogen will stay longer time down there or just for, for a short time. The longer it stays, the more likely it is to absorb moisture. When you then take it out of your cavern, you have to dry it. So you have to have a drying unit. We don't expect that there will be uh, a lot of more happened with the natural gas. So normally you put it into a cavern, you will get it out. It You have to dry it, of course. And uh, after that, you can send it to your, to your offtake. In case there are other circumstances which happened with the gas, uh, like uh, microbiology risks, uh, we're looking deep into, into this also. And uh, we are yeah, doing a lot of parallel activities also to understand the full picture of it that our design can prepare for this solution. Constructing the caverns will be a time-consuming activity and one that itself needs hydrogen for the dewatering process. It's another example of how important it is that the entire system is considered, not just one step in the chain. So you're starting, of course, with your, your project work and engineering work and do modelling and so on. But then it comes to a point where you have to drill a hole in the ground. A 1500 metre deep hole, which then becomes the route for water from the North Sea to flush out a cavern that's been so carefully designed by Michel and his team. So we call it in this process leaching. So, and with this leaching process, yeah, you are, you are limited in what you can achieve over time. This means careful planning, both forwards and backwards, to ensure that completion corresponds to market readiness. There have to be producers ready to send hydrogen and users or off-takers waiting to buy it. So our important goal is really to meet the other projects. Projects both upstream and downstream of the storage facility. Fortunately, the Aldborough project is part of a bigger planned investment by Equinor and SSE. Their efforts are part of a strategic plan to convert the industrial Humber area into the UK's first zero-carbon industrial cluster. To find out more about that, we spoke to Michel's colleague, Leon. Leon Prebaumenzis, I'm the project director for something we call Kidby Hydrogen. Uh, and Kidby Hydrogen is a collaboration with SSE Thermal and Equinor. And, and I work with Equinor. Uh, and, and the project uh, has three parts. The first part, which will be the Albro hydrogen storage, uh, which Michael's talking towards, and that's the uh, cavern storage. And the second part uh, is the Kidby hydrogen power station, which will be the first in the world at scale at uh, 1.8 gigawatts of hydrogen intake and 900 uh, megawatts of power production. More on that later. And uh, 
Finally, uh, we're also doing a piece uh, with Green Ambitions, which uh, we're looking in the area in the Humber, uh, because we understand we have to do a transition and, and we are focused on blue. So we are looking into green and, and shortly we'll probably announce our ambitions in that area. As you can hear from Michael, what we're trying to do is quite ambitious and, and you know, government support is, is critical for this. So, um, you know, we're looking to have hydrogen as per the UK's actually hydrogen strategy. The government's hydrogen strategy, published in August 2021, that calls for the development of a low-carbon hydrogen sector that includes 5 gigawatts of production capacity by 2030. We're trying to, and we, we intend to have hydrogen uh, as early as 2028 um, in the region. And in order for that to happen, you know, there's some key dates uh, we're looking for an FID. Financial investment decision. So that's really the direction for us to, to take a decision to move on. And we're looking at uh, 2024 or 2025 for that. But, you know, storage isn't something that you can just start and stop in terms of construction. It takes a long time. There's long lead items for it. So we need some certainty at least three to four years ahead just for us to start the process and to get it going. At the same time, industry is waiting for the findings of the government's consultation into creating a new hydrogen business model and its final decision on a net zero hydrogen fund. And ideally, we'd like to have some support, um, at least 50% support in DevEx and CapEx funding uh, for storage in an ideal world. Uh, we'd also like to include or have some sort of uh, direction in terms of business models for storage, whether it's a RAB model, whether it's something else. So as government continues to wrestle with exactly how it will kickstart the industry, an industry that the Committee on Climate Change has said is essential if we're to decarbonise energy systems, other projects too are in the planning stages. Matthew Knight is the project manager for the SSE Thermal for Keed B Hydrogen project, which Leon described as the world's first hydrogen fueled power station. It has a planned generating capacity of 900 megawatts, enough to electrify 1 million homes. Matt echoes Equinor's views on the need for a systemic approach. You kind of need a whole ecosystem to make it work. You, you know, you need the hydrogen supply, you need the hydrogen to move from the supplier to the consumer, you need storage to balance the system. You need the technology, especially on the CCGT side, um, to actually burn the hydrogen and to generate power. Um, and you need them all to develop at the same sort of a speed, um, and they will need to have the right kind of incentive to do that. And that that's a lot of the challenge. Because burning hydrogen is different to burning natural gas, and the infrastructure has to be designed for that. I think the, the key difference is the combustion. So hydrogen burns uh, hotter and quicker than natural gas. Um, so there's some modifications that are needed um, in some of the materials and some of the sort of other bits through the plant. But in the gas turbine itself, it's primarily around the burners uh, to control that combustion is, is the challenge. And I suppose the challenge for us developing the project is that the technology to, to burn 100% hydrogen at the kind of scales that we're looking at doesn't exist yet. It means creating a new generation of burner design and is the kind of challenge that engineers thrive on. People like SSE Thermal Senior Engineer Simon Garlick. So what you need to do is ensure that the, the combustion really happens in the right place If the hydrogen's firing uh, too quickly, then there's a danger that the, the flames effectively 
will, will, will cause the, the combustors to get hot in the wrong places, which leads to material problems and ultimately to you know, combustion, which we don't want. So SSE has been working closely with turbine manufacturers to understand exactly how this well-understood technology can be re-engineered for burning hydrogen. I think, I think it's really exciting. The, uh, the gas turbine manufacturers that we're talking about, that we're talking to describe it really as an adaptation. So it's, it's really the, the gas turbine technology has been on a journey the last few years. They've been adapting uh, their technology to meet, you know, the, the challenges that have been thrown up by intermittent power. So, you know, the, 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 the machines are a lot more flexible. They can respond faster to the sort of peaks and troughs in the grid um, that are being brought about by, you know, higher levels of wind power. And that's really led them to, to make a number of, of changes to design. This is really the next one, which is to really widen the flexibility for fuels as well as the, um, you know, the flexibility for meeting the grid's power needs. Flexibility of fuels applies to the hydrogen too. So initially, um, QB Hydrogen Power Station will be burning blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen derived from natural gas. So it will be reformed and the sort of other elements stripped out of it uh, to produce near enough pure, pure hydrogen that will then be piped over to our site. So initially, we provide flexible power. We can fill the gaps that renewables leave, but we're not storing the renewable power. So we, we, you know, the, the, it's a different primary source of energy. In, in the future, uh, where there is more green hydrogen or maybe even 100% green hydrogen on the system, uh, we will also you know, be able to burn that. And in that situation, the wind or the sun becomes the primary source of energy uh, and hydrogen becomes the storage medium for it. Uh, and essentially what you've got is a, a very large battery. Hydrogen as a storage medium has a lot of potential and it's one of the reasons that there's so much interest in it at the moment. One sector investigating the possibilities is transport. Here's Gareth again. Transport's an interesting one because there's, you've got the, you've almost got the Betamax versus VHS at the moment between electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And ultimately it's going to come down to what ends up being the best use case as the technology develops. In terms of mass, hydrogen has a much better energy density than other fuels at 33 kilowatt hours per kilogram, which compares to about 15 for methane. But as a gas, it takes up a huge amount of space. Now, when you look at it on a volumetric basis, it's a very different story. So even liquid hydrogen in its liquid form is only about 1.4 kilowatt hour per litre in terms of, of its, its energy density. And if we look at, say, uh, diesel or something like jet kerosene, that's around 10, just over 10 times more energy dense. So you get sort of 10-ish kilowatt hour per litre. So you've got to very much look at the, again, it comes down to the use cases to an extent, as to what that density is. So shipping liquid natural gas across the world, you've got a much higher energy density to ship across versus hydrogen, which is much, much lower in terms of shipping it across. You need much, either a much bigger vessel to ship the same amount of energy, or you just ship less energy. Volume is the big challenge here. Hydrogen has to be compressed for it to be contained in a vehicle, and the compression becomes greater the smaller the space available. For example, for passenger vehicles, you are looking about the 700 bar mark, for buses and trucks, you're 350 bar. And for the ammonia process, 200 bar. And 
That is one way of storing it. We compress it up into cylinders, into tanks. So those have a very limited capability of volume. So when it comes to the bigger geopolitical picture, locations with plentiful renewable power and the ability to make cheap hydrogen will only find it economic to do so if they can get it to their users, whether these are power stations, steel plants or transport fleets. So we've got a massive amount of hydrogen generation coming online or being projects coming online in, in the Middle East. And they need a way of being able to transfer the hydrogen both economically and viably. And so we then end up to going to the point of where we can liquefy hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen is obviously it's, it's a more capable way of, of getting that energy density in. But there are other options. And other options means converting the hydrogen into another substance, which is easier to transport. But of course, this chemical conversion uses energy. And then once it's in its carrier, we're once again converting it. We've got to, once it gets to its point of use, wherever that might be, we've then got to reconvert it back into hydrogen. So along that chain, it doesn't help that we are actually losing efficiency all the way along it. And so that's why sometimes there's this challenge about storage of hydrogen and when's it right and when does it make it appropriate and economically viable. Another transport industry seeking to decarbonise is aviation, which has historically been fully dependent on fossil fuels. Aircraft is very interesting because you need something that's light and energy dense. And hydrogen is definitely light, but volumetrically isn't very energy dense. But you can make it that by turning it into a liquid. But then you have all the engineering challenges of how do you store liquid hydrogen at minus 200 odd degrees on an aircraft? This is a question that Kamran Iqbal has been wrestling with. My name is uh, Kamran Iqbal and I'm the founder and CEO of Electric Aviation Group. We aim to develop world's first 90-seater hydrogen electric regional aircraft platform. But today our main focus is on the enabling technologies and building blocks without which no organization, smallest to the largest, can succeed in turning this vision into a reality. Electric Aviation Group has made the ambitious decision to become completely emission-free, a concept that aerospace engineer Camran calls true zero. And this means using hydrogen fuel cells to power electric planes. What we are focusing on in Electric Aviation Group is a true zero, which is completely getting rid of carbon and NOx emissions. So it's not an easy journey, which means that we need to develop the technologies needed to enable that vision or to turn that vision into reality. And for that, he sees three key technical challenges. We need to develop the hydrogen fuel cells at the right size and scale. We need to develop the hydrogen storage systems and cryogenic hydrogen storage system for large regional aircraft applications. And we need to develop the, you know, the electric propulsion systems at megawatt scale. Each one of these is a big challenge in itself, so big that the company has restructured to create three new subsidiaries that will each drive development of these three key areas. Camran says that the industry has to think big, because if development at scale doesn't start now, aviation will fail to decarbonise. We can't decarbonise the aviation sector by producing four-seater, nine-seater or 19-seater aircraft, because the pollution 
are CO2 emissions and NOx emissions which are and the noise emissions which are created by larger aircraft like Airbus A320s, Boeing 737 or some of the regional aircrafts. Those challenges cannot be overcome by producing four-seater aircraft or 10-seater and 20-seater aircraft. I'm not critical of small gauge and small size aircraft, but all I'm saying is that if we truly want to make a meaningful impact to the environment, we need to start developing the technologies and aircraft platforms at the right size and scale today. This includes the challenge that Gareth set out earlier around cryogenic hydrogen storage, which Cameron agrees is necessary from a volumetric perspective. Cryogenically stored hydrogen on the aircraft takes the less volume and space relative to gaseous hydrogen, but it still takes more volume and space than normal kerosene, even in the liquid form. So you would end up with longer fuselage on hydrogen-powered aircraft compared with a typical kerosene-powered aircraft if you are storing hydrogen in the fuselage. Cryogenically stored hydrogen must be turned into gaseous form before we inject it into fuel cell. And the tank itself would also have to be maintained at minus 253 degrees, which is critical from a safety perspective and presents materials science engineers with another interesting engineering problem to wrestle with. Out of the three building blocks we talked about, which is the electric propulsion system, hydrogen fuel cell system, and hydrogen storage system, cryogenic hydrogen storage is the most complex building block amongst three building blocks we are talking about. We need to find the people with the right expertise in terms of material characterization, in terms of the tank design, in terms of the safety of hydrogen storage on aircraft, because safety is the paramount in the aerospace sector. For Cameron and EAG, having a supply chain with green hydrogen available is critical. Otherwise, if we are using the uh, grey or brown hydrogen, it means that we are still we will be saying, oh, we are net zero, not true zero. So, and to to be able to succeed, EAG's main focus is not work in silos and develop the technologies and aircraft platforms. We need to have an ecosystem approach where we need to have a cross-industry, cross-sector collaboration. We need to make sure we develop the technologies at the right size and scale, but we also need to make sure that we develop the aircraft platforms at the right scale and at the right size at the right time. And at the same time, we need to make sure that we work with the other players in the ecosystem who are going to deliver other building blocks, like you know the infrastructure. We have to have the infrastructure in place. We have to have the supply chain, hydrogen supply chain in place. And we have to have those regulatory bodies, uh, those regulations in place for us to be able to certify the aircraft. And all this needs to move forward in at the same pace, which means cross-industry, cross-sector collaboration is, is the must. And this is one of the really special things about hydrogen. Its versatility is bringing together firms from across the energy industry and beyond in order to create a system rather than a commodity. Demand is coming from several sectors. There are people wanting to know that they can make a difference to climate change and wanting to be able to understand what can be done, what the art of the possible is. There are also 
older industries that are seeing that they need to change. But rather than shying away from that change, they are actually embracing that change. And they are accepting that tomorrow's world will be different from today's and they need to decarbonize fast. And they have the capability and the engineering skills to do that. We aren't gonna solve this one by one. One of my favorite quotations is, no man can build a pencil by himself. And that is the same for this situation. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. The co-host was me, Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own circular green system is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Atkins, and thanks also to our guests from Equinor, SSE Thermal and Electric Aviation Group. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.